Hello everybody and welcome back to Artsy Fartsy Immigrants. This is the 12 Songs for 12 Friends Breakdown, Part 6. Man Alive, you know, when I started doing this series, when I started this idea of, okay, there's a record label who's interested in sort of breathing some new life into this album from a few years ago, uh, maybe let's talk about it on the podcast and see what kind of new things come up, or just to relive it sort of like in in the vein of an anniversary. Let's go through it and think about it and talk about it and um, sort of just re-experience it for anybody who might be interested in that and might have the, uh, you know, the urge to go back and listen to any of these old songs. Um, I never imagined that I would be doing six, probably seven parts um, to this. I thought, you know, I mean, I think the first episode I got through the first four or five songs. So I thought, okay, 15 tracks, I'll do maybe three parts, you know, two, maybe three parts. But I never imagined I would get up. To, I mean, this is part six and probably given today's content, it'll end up being um, a final one on the seventh. However, I do find seven to feel like a lucky number because I've been convinced of that my whole life. So maybe that's uh, good luck. Maybe that's the right amount of things, uh, of episodes to have in this series. Um, last week, my goal was to touch on the song Eye to Eye, which is track 12, and to also talk about um, track 13, Far Too Thin because I had been covering like two songs per episode for a while there. But as you listened, as you heard, if you uh, tuned in last week, uh, I didn't get too far too thin because Eye to Eye was just such an enormous episode for me emotionally. And I've got news for you, boys and girls. Today is quite very much indubitably the same. <laughs> uh, today is also a big episode for me. Um, I, I don't always listen to my podcast episodes. In fact, I usually don't ever because I said them, I know what I did, I edit them, you know, and then when I send them off, it's kind of like just, it's just out there and hopefully people listen to it and share it. Um, and last week's episode and most likely again, this episode, um, I listened to it. Yesterday I went for a walk, um, contemplating when I, when I could find the time to record this week's episode. And I, I saw it on my Apple podcast um, list that the episode has just been sitting there. And I thought, well, you know, I haven't tuned into my own thing in a while to see how is it looking or coming off to other people. And sometimes it's good to do like a, a quality control. Go in there and check, are they, you know, are they using the same bowls to oil the chicken as they are the lobster? You know, are they washing their hands uh, before they salt the fries? You know, are they using gloves? Are they using hairnets? Sometimes it's nice to go in there and just see if everything's, you know, up to code for your, uh, the things you create. And um, I listened to it. I went for a walk and uh, I ended up, which this also almost never happens. I ended up listening to the whole thing. And I had a real... Um, yeah, I had a bit of an emotional response to it, which sounds 
I mean, to me right now in this moment, it feels very narcissistic to say that I listen to myself talk about my own songs and you know, I, I got kind of emotional. It's, it's more of the, of the fact of I was really like almost not hearing myself after a while, which is a good, um, that's a good thing to happen when you kind of forget you're listening to yourself talk. The first 10 or 15 minutes, I'm only listening to how is the mix? How do I sound? You know, are my, I have a thing with my S's. My, my S's are really sharp, so I have to put a lot of, um, anyway, that's, that's very boring behind the, behind the scenes stuff, but I have to edit things out to make sure that the vocals sound good and warm and podcast worthy broadcast worthy and so the first 10 or 15 minutes i'm listening for that i'm listening how is the tone and yada 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 and then at some point i just stopped thinking that way and was just listening to what this person was saying and um when i especially got to about the 75 percent way of that episode where i got very emotional about how uh, I wish uh, more friends would contact me or more friends would visit me, but that I am sort of imprisoned by the reality that I cannot blame them for moving on with their lives because it's my fault for moving away from them. Um, Man, that really... At the end of that episode, I apologized for for getting too sad or getting too real. I kind of want to recant that apology because I think that's kind of what this whole podcast is about. It's, a, it's very therapeutic for me to look at, you know, these spots on the wall or to look at, you know, these lyrics or look at my notes and just kind of talk from literally like from the hip um, about these feelings and to talk about these this project. And um, the series has been very cathartic for me in, in that way. So I don't feel bad for getting heavy in the last one because that's that was true. That was the truth. And that is a, a feeling I've been battling for a long time. For those who have never, uh, excuse me, who, for those who have never listened to this song that I put out last, I want to say last September, um, not two months ago, September, but September last year, I put out a song that pretty much just flew completely under the radar. (laughs) Like, I think it was my least listened to song of all time, which is such a shame. It was a duet uh, collaboration that I did with this Munich, uh, with this band who I met in Munich, but they're from this other town. Uh, This German band called Moonmates. I did a song called Pieces. And the song was originally my song. I wrote the whole thing on acoustic guitar. It sounded a a little different from the version that we recorded because um, Ben, who is like the showrunner for that band, um, I gave him the freedom to, you know, mix around, play with the chords, play with the production or the arrangements a bit and kind of make it a shared thing. And um, he, he did a great job. The song still... Uh, captures the spirit of the original song that I wrote. The original song was obviously more folky, and the one he made was much more funky. Um, I guess we were trying to go for like a Whitney, um, maybe like a Whitney meets, hmm, I'm trying to think what the combo would be that we tried to go for. I don't know, but it's a little more funky, <clears throat> a little more groove. Maybe Mac DeMarco is a good example. And um, so he did a great job with that, but so I wrote that song, Pieces, and it's up everywhere for streaming. If you haven't heard it, you can go check it out after this. Um, and the cool thing about that 
what I wanted him to do, because Ben also made the music video, was I wanted him to put the lyrics on the screen um, for a, a few different reasons. Like one is a business reason because you know most people who watch videos on their phone, like in a public place, um, actually watch them on silent and just read the subtitles, which is crazy to me. But that's why everything has subtitles now because it's like the market meeting the demand. And <clears throat> Uh, the other reason I did it was because I'm actually really proud of the lyrics and I wanted people who felt like me to to be able to, if they're, if English isn't their first language, for example, to be able to listen along and, and, and see the text and maybe connect with it. And the story, the reason I'm talking about this song is because that song is about that feeling that I talked about in the last episode. Um, Todd, I'm going to get to your song here. Um, I know you're listening. Let me just get to... I want to talk about that for just a second because this feeling that I dove into on the last episode was so important to me. Um, I was really proud of this and I wrote this song because a friend of mine who worked at this elementary school with me a couple of years ago, she's from Canada, she lives in Germany with her German partner and she really feels out of place and she often feels lonely and missing her friends and she struggles with the language and we really connected on all of that deeply. And she asked me if I could write a song to describe those feelings. And I promised her that I would. And within a few months, I had it. And it was called Pieces. I didn't really have a name. I think I called it Pieces Left Behind as well. But it's about these parts of you that you literally have to leave behind if you're going to make such a big move. And I'll just breeze through this because it really perfectly like captures this thing. Pieces left behind, you don't get to choose the feelings that you lose. And you try so hard, you're as nice as nice can be. And you're not sure now just who you're supposed to be. Is this the new me? And that's really like a exact, almost a quote out of my subconscious when I'm walking through Munich sometimes. Like, I'm trying so hard here, I'm, I'm being nice, I'm being social, I'm being friendly, but I'm still missing this part of me that I knew back in, in, you know, especially in New Orleans. Pieces left behind, you don't really seem to wake up from the dream, and you spend your days trying not to get too close, and your cord's been cut, and now all your family knows, and it's just the way it goes. And yeah, that one's kind of on the nose too, and then it's this, it's, it's this plea. The, 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 refrain, the refrain, the chorus is like this plea to these people. My, my, my friends from home, why can't you be here? Why can't you be here? Just like the old days, just like the old days. Why can't you be here just like the old days in our old ways, you know? And and I know, and I, I know why they can't be here because I left them, you know? But it's, these, it's this plea. Pieces left behind, the rope tied around your past is getting thin and you cry out loud, competition with the rain, and you wonder now if you should have ever came. Isn't it a shame? And then a chorus, why can't you be here? Why can't you be here? I swear I don't feel so alone. I swear I don't feel so alone when I got you on the phone. Why can't you be here? Why can't you be here? I got your pictures on my wall. Does it mean nothing at all? Why can't you be here? Why can't you be here? Um... Yeah, September 3rd, 2021 is when I dropped that one. So go check that one. If you liked the last episode and you liked this, um, sorry I took so much time with that, but if you, I just wanted to make that point, which is that 
if you connected or felt something close to your heart when I got to that part of last week's episode um, about the reality of living so far away from your native land and the feelings that you experience dealing with that and missing your people from home and stepping outside the bubble and, and looking back is, is difficult. Um, there is a song about that. So you can go check it out if you uh, want to feel it even more. And shout out to Ben from Moonmates for doing a great job with that production and Gloria, great harmonies. So um, you can, uh, yeah, Moonmates has some great songs. They have, uh, they, they write these really cool, catchy pop tracks and they're doing really well. Uh, so go check them out. Okay, on to today's official song of topic. Um, yeah, I just had to get that first part out of the way, but I'm really excited to talk about this. I wasn't just putting it off. <laughs> um, so today's song is track number 13. It's called Far Too Thin, and the song is about a very dear friend of mine, a person who's very close to my heart, um, and a, a very influential person in in many people's lives, not just mine. Um, his name is Todd Gurley. And strangely enough, this gentleman only met my parents two years ago. <laughs> How absolutely wild is that? Like, I was hanging, I'll get to all these stories, but I was like 17. I don't remember exactly how old Todd was when I was in high school. But I know that he was at least around. Uh, you got to forgive me for this, Todd. But I think I always knew you as like my 40-year-old friend. But I don't know if you were that age when I was 17. You were probably in your 30s, but I'm not sure. But you were still like almost around at least double my age. And my parents never came to the store. They never asked me to bring you home. They never like went out into town and came to Top Shelf with me. Like, what the f- why? Why did they not have more interest in who this adult man was that I was spending so much time with? But probably because I went there all the time with Cody and it was a public place and they just thought, well, at least he's not, you know, um, hanging out in the alley somewhere or as long as we, you know, as long as we do know where he is. But um, I think as far as I know, I know my dad for sure only met him when he came to my house two years ago on a visit. Uh, maybe my mom met him before, but only briefly. Crazy. Anyway, so Todd uh, is, of course, a person who I talk about a lot from this show, uh, and uh, he comes up a lot in a lot of other stories from this album because he's connected the threads that he the 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 webs that he's spun are are vast. And um, Todd is the owner. He was the owner of this record store in my hometown, Corinth, Mississippi, uh, 612 Cruise Street. Uh, that's why one of the <laughs> interludes with him talking uh, is called Cruise Street, because that's the street that Top Shelf Records was on. And um, it was this really cool oasis away from this town. Um, a small shop, but it seemed enormous to me actually, because they had a lot of secrets. You would come in, the, the 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 door would, you know, you'd come in the front door and immediately on the left is the counter where Todd would always be sitting. So I would always see him through the window and I would always know if he's there and he would always pretty regularly have someone sitting up there with him. Sometimes it was me, sometimes it was, I don't know, Cody or our friend John, um, plenty of like, you know, 
you know, girls that were also friends of his and like coming in the store and stuff. And we all had this sort of community and it was always like, oh, you're Mary. Hi, nice to meet you. Or like, oh, you're Katie. Oh, nice to meet you. You know, um, and I forgot some of the other girls' names that I met. Like we were all this sort of like friend group of the top shelf people. They went to a different high school, so I didn't see them as much. I only saw them at the record store. So it was always this sort of mishmash. And, uh, and they were a little older, I think, maybe a year or two, most of them from me. Uh, which in my eyes felt like, okay, all these girls are in college and I'm a small child. That's so funny how your brain works when you're that age. I was so like, oh, these older women, but I don't know. I was 17. They were probably 18. <laughs> you know, it's so silly. Um, anyway, so you'd come in the store, Todd's counter would be on the left with his, his laptop and his, um, his, um, what's the, the cash register. And then uh, if you go straight in front of you, you'd pass on the left a refrigerator that was stocked full of Jones soda, different flavors. My favorite was green apple. And then you would start with the shelves of movies. And usually on the, the first shelf you'd see is new releases. So you'd have like on the right, this stack of, you know, whatever, the new Pixar movie, the new James Bond, just stuff to get people to, you know, local people to pop by and rent their movies from there instead of going over to blockbuster which was on the other part of town in the shopping area in the main part of town um and then if you pass that you would start getting into i forget if it what, what section was first it, it always felt like pretty much immediately was the artsy films um and you would there was posters like the first poster that i re remember seeing on the wall on the top right was uh, the french new wave film um breathless and then you saw this uh, a scanner darkly uh, the Richard Linklater movie with Keanu Reeves and Robert Downey Jr. And that's that's an amazing movie. And then I think Garden State poster was between them. And then you'd go forward and I think, I think Urban Cowboy or Buffalo 66. I'm not sure. I can't remember which one has Matt Dillon. Maybe I'm saying all the wrong titles. It doesn't matter. And then you'd go through and then you'd be in documentaries and there's all these documentaries I'd never heard of before, never seen before. Um, a lot of rock music docu thing, documentaries on, you know, like uh, Wilco and Flaming Lips and um, all this, just like all these bands I'd never heard of too. I was like, well, who, who, like, who is this? Beulah, who's Beulah, you know? And then pushing forward, then there was this big back room that was like a 360 room of DVDs and it was a huge variety of things like, you know, then he, I think he, then he had started getting into like the genres Then it was like comedy, fantasy, thriller, horror, whatever. Um, and one, one of the secrets of this place was in that back room, there was like a closed off uh, glass door, not glass, but like with glass window panes and it was blocked off and it was like never, never used. And I only saw it open into what it opens up into when the place shut down and we were going through the empty building, just crying like dogs. Um, and that would have been actually a cool like back patio area because it was a closed off alley where we could have put a couple of, I don't know, little tables and put it like an espresso machine out there or something. We could have made it very European, um, but we didn't know. Uh, I mean, or Todd didn't know or I don't know. It was just kind of like this closed, empty space. Um, and then back by the counter, instead of going straight, if you go to the right, you're in the music room. Then you have a huge shelf of vinyls, a big space in the floor, um, a huge w window wall that faces the street so you can see in. 
uh, rows and rows of CDs, tapes, um, I think some tapes. And then there was like this back room, which I'm pretty sure I only saw once. Um, I think there was a, there's a bathroom back there. If you go through that room on the left, there's a bathroom, which I, I used a couple of times at concerts. And then I'm pretty sure that's where the bathroom was, if I remember correctly. Todd's going to let me know. But <laughs> and then the, and then there was a back room of like storage and stuff. And I, I remember just seeing a bunch of boxes and like vinyls. And I, we never spent any time back there. We never turned it into anything. Whenever we hung out, it was always in the main rooms. So um, but I still got my money's worth in there because that place was amazing. It was such a life changing record store for someone like me. You know, I'm, I'm this uh, insecure black sheep type of kid who has a really creative, uh, similar-minded best friend, Cody. And we, I don't know if, I think Cody was going there separately because of his friend John, or I was going there and brought Cody. I don't remember how, how it started. I remember the first time I saw this place, I was driving in a car, either with um, a friend of mine, who didn't have the same sort of like philosophies on life. It was just sort of like some guy who could, who, who enjoyed my company. So we just went for drives or played video games at his house. I don't remember if it was Kyle Harvey or Jesse, but one of these two guys was just driving around downtown. And I remember seeing a David Bowie vinyl in the window of this shop. And I had never noticed this shop before. And it was a Sunday. So it was closed. And I was like, I'm going to come back on Monday or whatever, I'm going to look at this vinyl. That's how it all started. I just drove by, by chance, saw a vinyl, by chance, and was like, that's cool. I want to go in there. And then that's kind of what, it kind of became a, a sort of a church for me in a way because I was always going there not just to see Todd and talk to him about what's going on in his life. And we became extremely close and, you know, we all were able to sort of talk very openly about what's going on and um, everything, but it, it it also became a place to, to feel safe and to be surrounded by culture and art and film and music and to talk about these things constantly and to get obsessed with them and to nerd out and watch YouTube videos of Fleet Foxes playing Saturday Night Live and go like, wow, or watch a Flaming Lips documentary and... Um, or, you know, just like to get really into this this world that I've never seen before uh, and to get like really wildly obsessed with it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about here. There's really a lot to hash out because the most interesting thing about the store is obviously the people that got involved with us through these relationships and through this experience. And Cody and I were there every day. I mean, we I, I've mentioned it before, but Todd had this amazing rental deal that was seven movies for $7 for seven days. And Cody and I would go together, we would rent seven movies, split the cost, and on, you know, day three or four, we'd meet up, hang out. We hung out every day anyway. And then we would meet up and switch. And uh, we just burned through movies. And it would be like 10, I had um, one of my Christmas presents was a portable DVD player, which was one of the coolest gifts I have ever received in my life. I still think that might be one of my favorite gifts ever besides my GameCube. <laughs> and I remember laying on my floor as a teenager in my in my little room under the stairs and watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind on this little like six inch by four inch screen 
not even like trying to put it on a bigger TV, just so zoned in with headphones, just watching it like watching it like it's um, a snuff film. Like you can't take your eyes off of it. So, so I mean, maybe not a snuff film because you're watching it with grotesque, <laughs> but you know, watching it with such a extreme obsession of like, this is the most beautiful, intelligent, creative, interesting, magical thing I've ever seen. Oh my God. Um, you know, I had only really known Kate Winslet from Titanic. For me, Jim Carrey was always like Ace Ventura. I didn't know who Michelle Gondry was at all. I was like, Mark Ruffalo's on this? Kirsten Dunst? I, I only knew her from Spider-Man. You know, like, it was at an era of my life where I was so naive about Hollywood and what indie films were and what indie film culture was and what what certain actors are known for outside of their, you know, occasional blockbuster. So it was really like a real eye-opener for me. And I remember sitting there and it would be like 10 or 11 o'clock at night on a school night probably. And I would immediately on my old Nokia flip phone call Cody's number and just take a breath and go like, and he would say something like, did you watch it? Did you just finish it? And I was like, dude, I just, I've never felt this way before. And he's like, I know, right? I know, right? And then I had a, like a um, tape, like a digital to tape. No, it yeah, it's like to tape, um, video camera. And we started filming like stupid ideas all the time that were like testing scenes. Like we, I don't know, we got into fight club for example. And then, so we would film something in, in my bedroom, which was just like me filming him walk. <laughs> like just from behind him, like a tracking shot of him walking through hallways, the same way that they that D Fincher tracks Brad Pitt as he walks into the first club that became the Underground Fight Club before it becomes Project Mayhem. And we just started like replicating things. And like um, we saw The Science of Sleep, another Michelle Gondry film. And we would do a thing like we turn the lights off in my room and pretend that one of us was asleep and have like a shaky handheld camera and a flashlight and have like a crazy dream scenario but we had no script we had no point we had no goal we had nothing it was just like we want to see this again we want to live it so much that we'll put it on camera and this all came because we had the opportunity to be exposed to great movies like this at top shelf it was all through todd um, let's go into the lyrics a little bit here and then we can talk about how the song was made and, and what it's supposed to represent and stuff. The first lyric is, I see it this way. Maybe we all needed something else, something else to help us feel at home. And that's where you came in. See you through the window, all the things I needed you to be. Um, yeah, so this song, again, this these lyrics have some some little rhyming things sprinkled in, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing for me was the melody. Um, it's almost like a rap in a way. I remember when I came up with it, I wrote it, you know, on a single acoustic guitar, and the melody is just like... And it, it's almost like R&B-ish or something, but it came out so perfectly in this, in this way and the way the song works. Um, but the, the text itself is very truthful and very, you know, very clear. There's no, no, not much to interpret there. You know, like, I see it this way. Maybe we all needed something else to help us feel at home. You know, I think most, if not all, teenagers go through a phase where they don't feel at home in their house. And it wasn't as if my parents had done anything wrong, but I felt like an outsider. I felt isolated. 
I felt different from people in my high school. I was a country boy who played football and spoke with a Southern accent, but, and I worked at a deli, but when I was in my mind, I wasn't like the other people. Of course, I got caught up in the local dramas and I tried to get girlfriends and I had my buddies and stuff, but that's what you do. Humans adjust to their environment. But most of the time, um, you know, I, if, if I thought someone had like a stronger uh, country accent than I had, then I thought, I thought of them as like country bumpkins, like dummies or rednecks or something. Isn't that silly? I thought they were like diff- like lesser people or more conservative or more racist or whatever because they sounded more country than I sounded because I was like I don't I don't sound that country you know <laughs> you know what I mean and it's so silly to think about that now when the, as the, you know as open and um, widely accessible as the world is you know it's not not the case. It doesn't matter what you sound like. It matters what the words are that you say. So it was very silly of me to think that stuff at the time, but I was a teenager and every, like I'm trying to say, every teenager comes to a point where they need something, uh, whether that is um, a certain artist, you know, like a lot of, are, I can see a lot of Gen Zers flocking to like Billie Eilish and Harry Styles. This feels very old of me to say, but I get it. Like Billy, I think is a great representation of like what a lot of young women feel and how they want to dress and how they want to be accepted. And I like that. Um, and Harry, he seems like a great representation of like young, youthful, loving, um, peaceful. Uh, he has this great aura, this great energy. And, you know, I, I can, there's just, I, I think they look for certain artists to cling on to. They look for certain experiences. They need to rebel. Um, like I said in previous episodes, I never wanted at all to be like the bad son who did bad things. I never wanted to be a bad boy. Uh, sounds so stupid coming out of my face. I'm a bad boy. But I just still rebelled. I still did things my parents didn't like, you know, or that I didn't want them to know about. And every teenager does this. And I think all of us in that town who felt different, who felt weird or nerdy or like a loser or whatever, flocked to Top Shelf and and really migrated to it and were so astonished by what it could offer, what Todd could offer as as a, this welcoming place for young people to feel at home. Um, and that's what I needed in my life, you know? And that's why that line is so uh, clear, you know, like... That's where you came in, Todd, you know. I would see you through the window. I would always check that first window where the open sign is, which later I bought at the closing sale. And I'm pretty sure my parents still have it in their garage and counts. But uh, I bought that. He had this um, purple and green LED open sign that turned on with a chain that you'd pull. And at the closing sale of everything in the store, I bought it crying, put it into my... I took it with me to Louisiana... Uh, Todd handmade me a vinyl record crate out of wood, which I also still have at my parents' house. I should bring it here. And um, I had all those things right next to where I slept in my first house um, apartment in, in Louisiana before I went to college. It was like this, my dresser, which had like a little 13-inch you know TV on it. And then I had my record crate, and next to it was my open sign. And I slept next to it every day. 
and looked at it every day and I would take different records out and display them like at war with the mystics, you know, or whatever. And it just really struck a chord this, this time in my life at this place. And it, you know, the whole store was only open like around four years. Isn't that insane? And I think only two and a half of them were my time at the store. And that says so much to me because it feels like I was there for 10 years. It feels like I went there all my life. But I went there for two and a half years. And for me, that's insane. And Todd, you know, his our relationship from client um, or from store owner to customer just blossomed into like deep, meaningful friendship. And I'm going to get to that later, too. Um, the next line is the chorus, which is sort of like the, the chorus is, is almost like this omnipresent voice that's speaking about the shame of the world and how it treats good people. The chorus is, well, they had you stretching yourself at, stretching yourself out far too thin for anyone to breathe. They had you stretching yourself out far too thin for anyone to breathe. Um... Wait. Well, they had you stretching yourself far too thin for anyone to breathe. Yeah. Oh yeah, I say it twice. That's why. Um, yeah, this this feeling or this this the meaning behind this is sort of coming from the perspective of like a bird's eye presence that's looking down and saying, you know, Todd. Towards the end of the closing of the store. Todd was in such a desperate position and it really broke all of our hearts to see because this was our haven, this was our home and we could do nothing about it closing. We could do nothing about it. It was losing money. Todd had a second job delivering books for the local library and he was putting that income into his, into his you know, he was taking, taking care of his mother who's sick, trying to put money back into the store, trying to keep up with the new releases you know, it was such a difficult time and he was really being stretched like as thin as possible in every direction to try and make things work. Uh, and as the song says, it was far too thin for anyone to breathe. It just wasn't, it wasn't a consistent, um, it wasn't a, what's the term, like a reliable um, choice. I, I, there's a certain phrase I'm thinking of, but I can't think of it. Um, so then the next line is pretty true. It's pretty like down the line. How could it be true? Look what's around you. All the friends you would ever need to know. Let me just separate the verse into two parts. That's the first part. How could it be true? Look at what's around you. All the friends you would ever need to know. This is about the store closing. How could this be true? How could it be true that we're losing this? Look around you. We have everything we need. We have all the music in the world. We have all the conversations in the world that you'd ever need. There are relationships being built out of the connections here. Like there were girls like through that store that I tried to date. Um, there were um, emotions attached to different people. There were different siblings there. We started having these concerts that I thought were like bringing money into the store, but obviously they didn't bring that much money. And it just, we like, towards the end of the store, we had so much going on in the store. It was like, how could this be true that it's not working? 
Like, look around you. We have everything we need. But it, it wasn't the case. And the next line is, Always just a bit further than your arm can reach, they all stand, the ones who got away. This is about, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to cross any lines with Todd's privacy, because um, I know that he is a private person, and um, you know I don't want to put anything out there that he might not feel comfortable having out there. But this line is about his romantic relationships. It always seemed to me, even as a teenager, that this this luck or this presence of like an actual romantic partner was just always just outside of his grasp. And it really plays into this um, mantra of like nice guys finish last because Todd is such a humble, caring, sweet, loving person. And he was for us this sort of like cultural guru, guru, <laughs> cultural guru in the way that he brought so much life into our world. And yet, when it came to trying to actually date women, it just wasn't working. And my theory about this is that Todd didn't get out of Corinth. Now, here I am in the position where I'm making a show uh, about this person, and I am not in the position to say what he could have done or should have done. I am only in the position to say um, what I would have wished for him. I want to make that clear. I'm not informed of anybody's private financial uh, situations, um, familial, uh, social restrictions, anything like that, so... I know a little bit, but what I'm trying to say is this is just my opinion about what I would have hoped for him. Todd is someone who, he got his he got a business degree, and he knew a lot of really interesting people from the Memphis music scene, and the stories he would tell were so gripping. He knew people that... He knew people that were just one degree of separation away from like major touring acts like Jack White. And this and it's like he's so close to that world. And it felt to us at that time that he was really like just one foot in, one foot out. When in reality we find out, you know, over time that I think Todd's I don't I don't know how to say it like I don't know if it's fear, because that's also understandable. But I think there's been certain restrictions either outside of his control uh, as well as inside of, of his control, but, you know, maybe held back by fear, um, kept him back from being a part of that bigger world. Not Not as a musician or something, but like living in a different city where the opportunities for him as someone who wants to be around more culture and art and you know city life and the, to be around more opportunities to to work in industries that he would probably really enjoy or even go be able to have a second chance as an entrepreneur uh get you know in a more updated 
uh, version of something as you know more of a modern day um i don't know it's so hard to say what i'm trying to say but like i always would have wished that todd got out because these because what i wanted for him what i still want for him is to have love in his life todd is an, a, a normal <laughs> smart good-looking guy this guy has such a head of hair i could kill him <laughs> this guy has he's like a brush like a like a like a bar brush that people use on the decks of like the old like in the old west when gunslingers would come in from 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 like you know raping the villagers and, and killing bison and they come in for a shot of whiskey and a whore like the guy in the in the leather vest with the pork pie hat and the mustache with the, you know, the chain he, and then like the apron, the guy who slides the beer glass all the way across the bar, that guy who sweeps the, the dirt and the mud and the hay and, 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 and yesterday's, you know, crusty blood stains off the front deck of that old Western, you know, um, um, no, what's the word? Uh, what's the word for the old bar? The, um... You know what I mean? Damn it! Damn it! Um, I want to say platoon, but it's not platoon. Um, anyway, the guy who like that brush, the brush he he uses on the front of that saloon. Thank you, thank you. I know you were screaming it at me. The guy who like you know sweeps all that stuff like <laughs> that thick brush that he needs to like push against the, the grain. Get that stuff out of that wood. That thick brush. That's Todd's hair. He has so much hair and he's still in great shape so ladies if you're listening come on come on get out there um no i'm just being silly but like my my wish was is always that todd would have had more opportunities or had the um or or maybe taken potential opportunities at certain times that he didn't take again just an opinion and i'm not totally informed about why certain decisions were or were not made I'm not in his shoes, and I know that his life is not easy. Um, and I don't want to just talk about everything in his private life. I just know that I, I would wish, and I still wish more for him, because he has no idea really what he was for people like me and Cody. Yes, I can write a song for him, and I could make an episode about my podcast about him and talk about how special he was and how more important he was to us than he might even think about himself and how long after he is dead he will be remembered for being such an important person and he will be um you know there will be a legend left either in audio recordings or in writing by people like myself and others who will always remember the story of todd and what he gave to these teenagers in need and i just when you have that sort of iconic relationship to somebody who's on this pedestal in your life obviously you don't want them to be you know in this small town in this house in these circumstances not in a romantic relationship with someone who makes him so happy you want you want that you know I remember the first time that I introduced Efi to him and they talked about um, this film film director Noah Baumbach and I could see in Todd's eyes just how absolutely enthralled and giddy and excited he was to talk to, you know, a beautiful woman about film creators like this. 
and you know to nerd out with someone who really understands his taste and my taste and this this world that you know he's a part of and all i could think the whole time was man you could you could have this you could have this you just have to get out of here where we are at this lunch you know like get out of this town um but you know it's it's not easy nothing like that is easy and who am i to say who am i to sit here in my position and say he should do anything i just want him to be happy and that's really what the song is about it's a mixture of you'll have you'll never understand how much you did for us um this i you you've left such an imprint on these people that you will always be remembered for this and I always want more for you. I want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. There was a relationship that he had for a while with this person. And it just, I know it didn't hit all his buttons. I know it didn't really make him truly happy. There were certain um, people that he met through this relationship that that he was really keen on. But the actual, like, you know... You know when you bring up a band to somebody and they just don't get it? Or you show a movie to somebody and they just don't get it? That was like always happening to him. And that's not... You can't have nothing in common with somebody. Todd's whole world is... Or at least it was, you know, was always about film and music. And that's got to be the forefront most important thing for his opposing or like the, his opposite his partner his future partner it's got to be like the most important thing that they can say oh hey uh, let's take off work tomorrow there's a matinee of the new you know i don't know um the new whatever florence Pugh movie or <laughs> yeah i don't know um like the new coen brothers and just say something like that like yeah let's go see this you know or, or like oh look you know um i'm just running i don't know why i'm so blank on examples today i guess i'm so wrapped up in like what i'm i'm trying to not step on toes while also say exactly how i feel um but yeah i just would have always that's what this line means that's i should just bring it all back to this which is always just a bit further than your arm can reach they all stand the ones who got away you know there were always there was always a handful of 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 women that could have maybe even should have in a way been his true love that reached out at this really, I don't know, at this time that was so difficult for him or was so scary for him or was just super difficult for him and given his circumstances, he couldn't make the the leap. And I get it. I really get it. But I will always want more for Todd Gurley. I will always want more for him. And I hope that he understands that whatever angle I come at today in this episode... It is only meant out of absolute, dedicated, unwavering love and devotion. Like, I just want you to be happy. And then we move on. Uh, we have a, the last chorus here. Well, they had you stretching yourself out far too thin for anyone to breathe. And then the last line is kind of another um, little message from this sort of omnipresent, you know, bird's eye voice in the sky. I mean, it's all really me talking to him, talking about him in the song, but that's the image I have in my head. And the line is, well, I don't think it's fair how the world plays these games with us. 
plays these games with us. And that's kind of what always what it always felt like. Todd was, you know, just a pod on this chessboard, and every time that he protected, um, you know, the the queen, for example, which could have been me and Cody and John and Mary and all the other people from the store, whenever he was used as protection, he was thrown to the side or he was taken by the other team or other chess references you know he was just not he was just not protected himself and it's like people are like playing games with him in this way it's not fair it's just not fair um now we can talk a little bit about the production let me see how much time i've done here okay we're doing good let me look at the production a little bit here um, this song is definitely one of my favorites production-wise. The way that the arrangements came out, the way that the final product sounds compared to the original demo that I recorded for them, because you have to remember, almost everything, well, actually everything for this album except for the interludes was recorded by me alone on an acoustic guitar, and it just didn't have the same <laughs> power that these songs have. Um, I will never forget, I think it was... I guess it must have been 2018. It must have been a, a visit before the album released. I was visiting my parents and Counts. Cody Hopper came and visited me. I think Todd couldn't visit me that year, or maybe I saw him at a different time. And, oh, no, no, no. I saw Todd. I saw Todd at a different point on that trip because I remember showing him this song in my car. But So Cody, before Todd heard it, Cody came to my house and we sat in his car, and I and I played this song for him. It was the first time he was hearing anything from this album. Imagine the pressure. So I played him this song, and I will never forget his reaction. I mean, he was like basically punching the ceiling of the car at the ending of this song. It was so exciting and like invigorating and so electric for him. And he was just jamming and like head bobbing so hard. I thought he was going to honk the horn of his car. Just, ugh. Um, it turned really turned into a great uh, heavy rock riff at the end. But there's a reason for all that. There's a reason the the, the songs arrangements are also on per like purposely telling this sort of story where, you know, it starts off so sweet. I'm gonna I'm sorry that it's just off the laptop here, but it starts so sweet and so simple like this. You know, it's just the piano straight down on the one. Dun, 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 dun. Super sweet, super simple. And this is really just like the curiosity of me passing by this store by chance, seeing a record in the window, popping in, you know, just didn't know Todd, didn't know anything. What is this store? What are these movies? What is this music? Looking at something, you know, nonchalantly, just listening to him. I think he actually had a friend sitting with him on the counter the first time I came in. Um, and that's sort of this like innocence starting up. And then we get later on into the chorus here. Let me find it. And we have this build up here. And uh, shout out here to Fanny. This is her real name, by the way. But Fanny Kamalanda. Fanny Kamalanda uh, on the cello. She did such an amazing job. Um, Vivi did uh, the cello arrangements. Uh, 
she had a couple of different ideas and we tested all of them. And then in, in the end, I approved what we kept and what we didn't keep. Um, and Fanny just played such so perfectly. She's really a professional. Just this beautiful, beautiful German woman. She's probably like 50... Two fifty-three, maybe I think I'm. I'm just guessing, but um, super attractive um, cello player and so lively and sweet. And um, yeah, I haven't I haven't spoken to her in a long time. Um, let's yeah move on to the first chorus here. And again, everything is still very smooth and soft. It's just easing in, you know. Uh, I'm actually remembering now that there are no harmonies on the vocals on this first chorus. We actually took those out and kept it just sort of a call and response between my vocal and the cello, which I think is a really nice touch. It's very soft, very gentle. Well, then you stretching yourself out. Da, 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 da. Very nice call and response. I love those cello arrangements. Um, then we have a really great this snare right here hold on one two three <laughs> I always <laughs> I always call that the Bob Dylan snare because the beginning of like a rolling stone has this crazy fat boom and I always whenever I put a snare like that I I put one in uh, the last song on my most recent album the song daily bread off of simple swimmer has this uh, Bob Dylan snare uh, in, after the bridge, right before the big ending. So I love that we put that uh, in this song. Uh, then things start building here. We have some harmonies coming in. That's uh, Vivi on the backing vocals there. I think I doubled my voice here to get some thickness, putting it in either speaker. And then um, Vivi doubled her harmonies. So we had a really rich, full... Uh, I love the harmonies that she sang there. And so the point is of this arrangement, so we have all this loving sort of like hugging, holding, talking to Todd, the memories of sitting at the counter eating corner slice pizza before my senior follies. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I had this... So I had a couple of different performances at this auditorium in uh, this theater in downtown Corinth. One was like a Christmas, um, like a Christmas talent show thing that I played. My mom remembers with my deer antlers. Um, I think that was before my top shelf days, maybe, or maybe just around the time. And then the second thing I did was my senior year follies, which is like, uh, a lot of high schools in that region and in America will put on like a big play, um, as a sort of a presentation, your farewell gift to the world as a senior in high school. And I remember I had volunteer, or I, I had pitched to the people there, why don't we do Lunch Lady Land from Saturday Night Live? I always wanted to be Adam Sandler because he played guitar and was funny. And um, we had my friend, uh, a different Cody, play Chris Farley's character. Ironically, the skinniest guy in the school, since Chris Farley is famously not so skinny. Um, and we did Lunch Lady Land. Uh, you should just, if you don't know it, just YouTube it. It's great. Um, 
And I remember before going into the the theater for like, I don't know, a few hundred people performing these different skits and songs with um, this fellow students, I was over at Top Shelf, like when I should have been in the back, maybe getting dressed or getting rehearsed. I was just sitting there watching YouTube videos with him of, of bands uh, eating corner sliced pizza and talking to him. It was just, there was always things like that. Um, one time I remember I had this terrible uh, date with a girl. I was kind of starting to see this girl. We were really getting along, um, but her, I, I, I never even told pretty much anybody about this girl because it was such a short-lived romance, if you can call it that, but it was during my top shelf day, so I was probably 17 or so. She was a girl, I forgot how we met, probably through a friend at a party. No, no, not at a party because I didn't really go to parties, but like I met her somehow. And she was very nice. She had black hair, uh, which was, you know, different for me. Um, very sweet. We went to go see the movie Coraline together with two of her friends. I liked that movie. I remember seeing it. And then she was very, I don't know. I, I think I was attracted to her because she was very sort of touchy feely. Um, I didn't get a lot of that in high school. You know, she was like kissing me on the cheek. She was holding my hand. She was like making a lot of affectionate PDA towards me. And there was not a lot of that going on for me, <laughs> uh, to be honest. So um, I, I was really responding a lot to this. Like, you know, the, they always say, what's your love language? And for a lot of people, love language is physical touch. And um, I can totally relate to that. And I remember I was at her house. And that's where everything spiraled down into a hell that I will never forget. Um, that's when I realized that she is absolutely, and her family, are the most disgusting, foul, icky people on earth. Um, everything in the house was covered in this sort of slimy, like, human skin oil. Like, when people don't bathe for months. The house smelled like B.O., they had several dogs. I love dogs, but come on. Several dogs all over the furniture. So everything's covered in dog hair. Everything's oily and sticky. There's like food on the floor. Everything was so gross. I almost immediately turned around and like kind of stings your eyes. And we walked to her bedroom and we were watching something on the TV in her bed, which for a teenager, this is like, woohoo, something's going to happen here. And I remember we were starting to kiss. Things were like leaning in, a ro in into, you know, I know my mom's listening, but they were leaning in that direction. And uh, I was so grossed out by, um, every, like her bed had trash on it. Um, her skin felt oily, like the furniture. Everything stunk like unwashed, like, I don't know. It felt like, oh, it was just so gross. I couldn't even wrap my head around it and I, I I made an excuse I was like oh no uh, like we didn't really go anywhere with this because I was so grossed out that I was like almost throwing up in her bed and I remember I uh, pretended to look at my phone or my watch or whatever and I was like oh my god I totally forgot I, I have to go you know to um, I don't know uh, a youth bible thing I don't know I was still going to church in Wheeler Grove there so I was like I have to go do something I forgot I have an, uh, something with my parents or whatever she's like oh no I'm um, shame and I was like I'm really sorry I gotta go probably she knew instantly it was because of what we were doing maybe she thought I was too too scared or whatever um, but I ran out the door and I felt so disgusting. I felt so tainted, so spoiled, so cursed by whatever this like lingering ick that was on my arms that I drove straight to top shelf, 
He was like, Todd was in there talking to someone, having a nice day. And I burst into the door and just said like, I have to, I have to wash my hands and like ran to the back room and washed my arms up to like past my elbow in hot water with loads of soap. I did like three runs, like trying to clean myself off of like a COVID soaked train ride. And, uh, I, I, I washed my face. I washed my neck and I was just like, I hate this. I hate this. There was a lot of funny little things that happened like that. I wonder if Todd remembers that. Um, uh, but the, uh, right. Sorry. The arrangement of the song. The point is, um, this whole, most of it is very sweet. Like 70% of it's very sweet. And like, I want the best for you. And it always seemed like true love was just outside your grasp. And it's just, God's playing these games and I don't get it. Why is it so unfair to people like you who mean so much to me? And then the song takes a switch and you start to hear these dissonant crackling feedbacks, uh, feedback of many guitars uh, here. I love that. That was accomplished by our friend Luke, who's a great guitar player. We brought him into the studio. Uh, he laid down a couple of different licks over different songs, but for this, what he did was he created feedback um, on his guitar towards the amp. He did it like seven different times, and he did it different ways, and it created this chaos, dissonant wall of just guitar noise, and it's supposed to signify that something dark is coming, something heavy, something unnatural is like changing the genre here a bit. And I'll never forget, I think we were in the studio... And Jake, the bass player, approached me and he said, hey, I finally worked out a great bass line. Or maybe it was before, it must have been long before the recording because uh, we had the song on lock for a while. Um, but he approached me and said, I finally wrote a, a great bass line for the ending. Because in this song, um, the main chords, the main rhythm is all I really had. I, I thought maybe we put a guitar solo on it or something. We add something on top. Um but it really was just this doom, 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 um, And that was all we really had. And then he wrote me, or he came, he met me one day and was like, I, I wrote this line for it. What do you think about it? And it was this um, doom, 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 and I was so, I was so blown away by this. It was so classical, but also metal. And it was this perfect combination of emotion and drama and minor chords. And it fit the song perfectly. And that ended up really making the track. We, 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 I took that, we, we played with it a bit. We added um, a couple of guitars doing that lick. Um, we changed the whole rhythm around it. Uh, Nick, the drummer, really played around with his fills to match the aggression of this. And the whole point of this, the whole point of this ending being so big and loud and angry, it's representing what happened to me emotionally as a teenager on those last days when Top Shelf, this place that was really like a second home to me, was being taken away from me. And like Todd and I were, you know, looking at this empty store together, just hugging and crying on the street because it was home. It was really, it was home, you know, and like, I had uh, some of the 
you know, gear from the store in, in my bedroom at home. I didn't know what to do with it yet. And, you know, Cody had stuff and a lot of the friends had stuff. And, uh, you know, I just, it, you just see this empty building and that's when you finally open up the back door and see that there's like a space for maybe like a patio and you look in the back room and it's all empty. Oh, there's carpet in here. And it's just like, there were so many, I was looking through that giant window in the music room and picturing these countless, countless nights where Cody and Todd and I would listen to bands that only Todd knew, people that Todd showed us that were like friends of his from these Memphis college bands, you know, I mean, he'll know what I mean, but like, you know, playing hacky sack to high note was the epitome of what made us so happy. It was the most innocent happy good good thing for us you know it was our protection away from like the fear of or my fear of girls at the time and like I was talking openly about my feelings and I felt normal there and I felt so connected to him and so connected to this place and I mean he would leave the shop to me and Cody sometimes like Cody and I started a a duo group called Warehouse Junkies where he played piano a keyboard and I'd play guitar and I wrote some songs for us and um, we'd say can we rehearse in the room here and he would just be like well you know it's nine o'clock or whatever it was ten o'clock um, I got to go run some errands but I you know just here's the keys and uh, I'll come back you know in an hour or just lock it or something and it was so like yeah of course man we're going to protect the stuff we're going to protect this place and we're just going to hang out here don't worry and so many late night things we had so many countless concerts in that main room like concerts that I after a long time of convincing finally got Todd to start doing and then we loved it then we were booking people uh even concerts where I wasn't playing you know it was like the top shelf records gig we made posters we had Drew Danbury come play from Utah we had Corey Taylor Cox we had so many great musicians paleo from New York we thought this was like a famous person you know we had so many great acts coming through you know, it was like 60 people, 70 people at max, um, ticket sales out the, at the door, full house, sold out, um, Jones sodas in everybody's hands, uh, college kids standing at the door, smoking cigarettes, drinking Newcastle beers. It was just this like great, it was like, this is the place. This is the place it's happening. It's happening here. This is the, like the epicenter of culture and art and music and hip and youth in my life. And then you're standing there at an empty, dark, bland, beige building and you realize it's all gone. It's all gone. All that magic, all those concerts, all those relationships, all those glances at girls, all those moments of sitting on the floor with, um, you know, corner slice pizza, all those experiences, talking to Todd, asking him for the 1000th time, what, what is this song? And him saying, it's MGMT, Jordan. I've told you a hundred times it's MGMT. And finally, Cody giving me the, the first CD, this MGMT album in person as a gift on the bench in front of the store, me playing acoustic guitar, practicing on the bench in front of the store, countless days, Cody and I meeting there, having lunches there from our warehouse job, going down to the gazebo, having a cigarette, coming back, going in the store, talking to Todd, sitting at the counter. We recorded, we recorded like an album in the back room, in the DVD room. We, we, it was so perfectly sound protected from all the carpet that we just 
uh, in the curtains that we sat there and we there's a picture of me on my old Facebook of me in like a black and white striped hoodie with a huge mop of curly hair playing my acoustic guitar and 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 recording this album and you know Cody recorded me on like a rock band microphone directly into his uh, laptop and like all this magic special amazing stuff happened there that never could have happened any other way and then it was gone and that's what the ending of this song that's what it felt like Yeah, man, just just crazy, intense anger and disbelief and heartbreak. And the very, very last line of the song, and I'll end it there, is Thank you for the songs I never would have heard. Thank you for the songs I never would have heard. No, I don't think I'd be the same without you. Thank you for the songs I never would have heard. No, I don't think I'd be the same without you. And that still rings true. Every... Todd used to make me, I think it was monthly CD mixes. He would choose special songs just for me in an order that he thought I would like them. He handmade the covers. He handmade the sleeves that the CDs went into. And it was called like Autumn Mix. And it would he showed me Elliot Smith and the Autumn Defense and the Flaming Lips. You know, my cosmic Autumn Rebellion. Um... He showed me Beulah. He showed me Fleet Foxes, MGMT. He showed me everything that defined who I am, not only as a person, but as a musician who strives to make a career in in that world. There would be no Jordan Prince as you know him without Todd Gurley. And that's just true. So I think I'll leave it on such a somber note there. Um, I love you, Todd, and I wish only the best for you. And I hope you, um, I hope you really enjoyed this. I enjoyed this. I didn't think we'd go an hour and 10, uh, on this song, but you know, like I said, it was a hard episode. I'm going to try and wrap everything up in the next episode because one of them is just an interlude. It should be easy to get through that. But um, guys, if you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure just to share it with a friend or go wherever you listen to this to the podcast, if it's Spotify or Apple, and just you know f- follow us there or give us a rating or a review, uh, a comment, subscribe, anything that can help make this algorithm bump our shows up to new listeners like you who might enjoy the show. It really, really helps us a lot. And I really want to try and grow this artsy-fartsy family because I think like-minded people like you, I know who listens to this show and I think we're all very similar people. And I think we can grow this sort of community together and have good like-minded people that, you know, all feel the same way and can sort of express things this way. And I love that. And it would really help me a lot if you just do that. Even if you just tell a friend, word of mouth, it really goes a long, long way. So thank you for doing that. Please share it. Um, and in the show notes, um, in the description there, we have all of our social media links. We can follow, you can follow us on TikTok, on YouTube, on Instagram. And, uh, of course this album, 12 songs for 12 friends is available, um, on every streaming site for, for listening. If you want to go check out this song after this is over 
And uh, just as an update, I got the second draft of the Magnus contract today. I'm going to be looking it over and probably signing it um, soon. So fingers crossed that that all works out. I'll keep you updated. And um, yeah, I love you, Todd. This one's for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back next week. Artsy Farsi Immigrants, ein Podcast von John Prince und Moritz Batscheider, produziert für M94.5.